Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. Today's webinar is made possible by the generous support of our donors. For those donors joining us today, thank you. Your generosity is critical in helping us to reach tens of thousands of policymakers, community leaders, journalists, and interested individuals like today's audience members. If you're not yet an Israel Policy Forum donor, please join us and visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving to make a gift today. Thank you. Now on to today's program. Tensions are peaking between Israel and Iran. Against the backdrop of talks between the U.S. and Iran in Vienna on re-entering the JCPOA nuclear deal, an attack took place at Iran's Natanz nuclear site, which has been attributed to Israel. To help us break down this series of events and its ramifications, we're fortunate to be joined by Dahlia Dasake. Dahlia is a scholar at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., where she is working on a project entitled The Making of U.S.-Iran Policy. And she formerly served as director of the RAND Corporation Center for Middle East Public Policy. Last year, she co-authored an article in the journal Survival on Israel's policies towards Iran with Shira Efron, who is a policy advisor here at Israel Policy Forum. So with that, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's jump right in. Could you please explain the significance of the Natan site that was the target of this Israeli attack? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again, Susie, and to Israel Policy Forum, a great organization, uh, and to my colleague, Shira Efron, who uh, has spent a lot of time on this issue as well. Um, Natanz is, is Iran's largest uh, enrichment facility, and it has been the uh, target of previous attacks because of that. Um, it's also where the breaches of the nuclear agreement are ongoing on Iran's side. Uh, it's um, probably not a, a complete coincidence that it had just unveiled a new set of advanced centrifuges just days or, or day before the most recent attack earlier this month uh, on the facility. Um, so it's really the, you know, looked at as one of the key centers of Iran's ability to pursue its nuclear program, which so far is civilian, but of course, um, the concern is uh, that it could be weaponized in the future, which is what all the debate is about. Natanz was also hit last year by Israel. Is this a feature of a concerted strategy on Israel's part, or are these attacks being carried out on an ad hoc basis? What other fronts is the Iran-Israel conflict being fought on? Well, it most certainly is not ad hoc. Uh, this is a concerted strategy on the Israeli part. Um, it's it, it spans multiple domains now, um, starting with the nuclear, which is not just a new phenomenon. This is um, this is not just Israel uh, targeting sites to disrupt the the uh, new negotiations in Vienna uh, to restart the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, this has been an ongoing campaign for over a decade. Uh, you have multiple methods the Israelis uh, have used, according to reports. Uh, they have used uh, cyber in the past, a very notable attack that was um, believed to be conducted actually with the Americans back in 2010. 
uh, called the Stuxnet virus. That was a cyber attack, to, cyber attack to disrupt centrifuges at that time. You have multiple assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists. There have been at least five over the past decade, most notable of which was the uh, top Iranian nuclear scientist in last November, right during the transition period in the, here in the United States presidential election, interestingly. Um, you've had then these explosions, the one you just mentioned, of course, that we're talking about this month, uh, and then the earlier one last July, again, at the Natanz uh, enrichment facility. These uh, look to be not just cyber attacks, but actually uh, a, um, a covert uh, uh, effort to uh, insert explosive devices within these facilities. So it looks like uh, if true, the is Israelis are actually penetrating within Iran's most sensitive nuclear sites, which is quite notable. Um, and then you've had the raid in 2018 of uh, the uh, so-called nuclear archives, where the Israeli intelligence um, actually uh, took out thousands of nuclear, document, uh, nuclear documents from that facility right in the heart of um, Iran and Tehran, uh, and so really showed their capabilities within the country. Um, now, on top of all that, and I think what makes this particularly volatile moment is that this is all all of these attacks on the nuclear program, um, which are more expected because that's been an ongoing pattern. Israel um, absolutely wants to prevent it, uh, the ability of Iran to weaponize its nuclear program. Um, but you have this broader Israeli-Iranian escalation across the region. So the broader context is uh, the campaign that Israel has been launching in Syria, its so-called campaign between the wars that really started um, as an official doctrine back in 2015, you have had an escalating conflict and, and um, escalating series of Israeli strikes within Syria, um, expanding not just to uh, armed shipments to Hezbollah and concerns about Syrian shipments to Hezbollah or Iranian proxy forces, but actually direct hits on Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard forces and personnel directly. Um, the war expanded um, in in uh, tempo, but also in publicity. Uh, Israeli generals got much more open about these attacks. You had the uh, former Israeli Defense Minister Naftali Bennett coined the so-called octopus doctrine, which is this idea that you know Iran is this it's this its influence is like this octopus. Its tentacles are expanding throughout the region. These are not my words. These are uh, Israeli uh, Israeli terms. Um, um, and um, and the idea is you got to cut the head of the octopus off. So they started targeting Iranians directly. And then this expanded this campaign against Iran to limit not just its nuclear program, but its regional influence expanded beyond just airstrikes within Syria itself and, Syri and Iranian targets within Syria to Iraq. And then now over the past year or so, uh, we are seeing uh, growing reports of a maritime, basically a maritime war uh, underway between Israel and Iran, where there's tit for tat attacks um, on uh, Iranian ships by the Israelis. At least 10 have been reported, at least three Iranian attacks on Israeli ships. This is happening in the Eastern Med, in the Red Sea. Um, the Israelis are getting attacked in the uh, Gulf of Oman and other Persian Gulf arenas. Um, so things are really heating up. It's it's wide, you know, widespread. Um, and the view, I think, on both sides is that this is calibrated. They can contain this conflict, keep it from an all out escalation uh, to full war. Uh, but when you have this many attacks on this many domains, I think, um, you know, we're, we're in for some uh, potential miscalculation and, and serious escalation risk. And of course, 
something could spiral out of control, right? I mean, that's always a possibility with this sort of silent war that's not exactly so silent at this point. Well, exactly. It's 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 so-called the so-called shadow war or covert war, but it is really becoming increasingly difficult to call it that. Um, we're mm-hmm. seeing a lot more chatter, a lot more openness, a willingness to speak to the press, both from the Israeli side, um, even from the Iranian side. Uh, so I think this is, you know, quite dangerous if both sides think they can control this. Um, because it doesn't take much to miscalculate, especially when you have two parties who don't communicate directly with each other. Um, and there's a lot of assumptions made on the other side. And so this is, from my perspective, what would worry, you know, and many of us are worried most about. Sure. Uh, in 2015, as you know, many former and current Israeli security officials seem to understand that the nuclear deal negotiated by the P5 plus one countries with Iran was better than having no deal at all if not if they were not in favor of outright supporting the JCPOA you wrote in the washington post last week that the attitudes of those former officials do not reflect those of today's crop why and how have attitudes within the israeli defense establishment shifted on the iran deal yeah i think this is a really important point and a and a and a area of nuance that's not always completely understood here in Western audiences, uh, although maybe you have a global audience here today. Um, there, I don't want to overstate this. The you know official Israeli position has always been opposed to, of course, a nuclear-armed Iran, so is the U.S. position for that matter. But there was back in 2015 when the original agreement was finalized, um, there was a pretty vibrant debate in Israel about um, not that they didn't agree with Prime Minister Netanyahu that Iran had to be stopped, but they were concerned about his methods, this very open and confrontational approach with the United States, going to the U.S. Congress, um, really politicizing this issue um, in the uh, American domestic landscape. Um, And this was also viewed as Um, as disruptive to the U.S.-Israeli relationship. There were also debates about the value of military strikes and so forth. Um, But once the deal was done in 2015, you had some security experts who even opposed the agreement and think it, it got to the best terms it could have basically said, you know what, this is better than alternatives. We can live with this. And so there was an adjustment in Israeli uh, circles, especially in the security establishment, um, saying, you know, it's not a perfect deal. We can live with this. Let's focus on reigning in Iran's influence in other domains. And that's not surprisingly where you saw the escalation of the campaign between the wars in Syria in 2015 is where it really escalated um, to kind of contain Iran in that other theater. So um, you you had a law. I wouldn't say there was no discussion of, of the nuclear issue anymore, but until kind of President Trump came into office and reopened this Pandora's box, um, there wasn't a lot of debate. There was kind of uh, basically adaptations. Israelis are quite pragmatic and they adapted to the reality. This is done and we'll make the best of it. Then once you had the Trump administration come in um, for the first year before the Trump administration decided to fully withdraw by May of 2018, the U.S. did officially withdraw from the agreement. You actually had, again, Israeli officials who said, um, including in the security establishment, uh, don't pull out. We don't like this deal, President Trump, but it's not a good idea to pull out of the deal. It's actually working. Not only international atomic energy assessments were saying the Iranians were complying, but Israeli security assessments were saying that actually the Iranians at that time 
were complying with the agreement and it wasn't a bad way to box them in. But once the U.S. withdrew and the Trump administration decided to pull the U.S. out unilaterally from this agreement, um, it really opened up, uh, I think, or I, I should say rather, it kind of closed the space for a vibrant debate because then the thinking in Israel was, okay, if again, pragmatically adjusting to the new reality, if the U.S. is out of this, if this deal is going to start unraveling, um, let's get on board with this pressure campaign. This is a, you know, this is a good thing for Israel. Let's let's really contain Iran. They saw the the um, assassination of General Soleimani, uh, the head of the IRGC force, as a, a major accomplishment. Um, you saw an uptick in Israeli attacks uh, across different theaters, um, and so again, um, I think now you're starting to see with the Biden administration and and this. Um, what looks like a commitment to return to the JCPOA, again, you're seeing Israeli debates starting to come up, saying, again, is it so smart to be confrontational with the Americans? So it very much mirrors the debate we had in, back in 2015. The difference today, though, is that it's not the official or prevailing viewpoint. I think at this point, and we'll see, and I think these are going to be important debates to watch, but for the time being, even Benny Gantz, who in the past kind of showed pragmatism. Let's just, he had a speech where he said uh, after the original JCPOA, oh, let's look at it as glass half full, not half empty. Well, just this past you know week when he was with um, General Austin in the first uh, official visit to Israel, he, um, he said the old agreement is not good enough. So even Benny Gantz, who you would think would have, you know, uh, maybe slightly more pragmatic views, don't really want to see a return to the original agreement. At this point, the Israelis are worried the sunset clauses are five years closer. I Iran has gained research and development capabilities that will be difficult to reverse. So it's not to say there isn't some debate. There are important voices. The former head of Mossad just wrote an op-ed suggesting let's get on board with Biden's two-phase approach. But they're not the dominant viewpoint. And I think we need to be very careful Um I personally think that the two-phase approach is a good idea and a return to the deal would be in U.S. and Israeli interests. Um, but we have to be realistic about where, where the thinking is in Israel right now. And it's not there yet. It's not there openly embracing uh, Biden's approach. It may get there once it becomes a reality. But until it does, um, I think we're likely to see continued Israeli opposition to this agreement. So that's my next question. Um, how does the Israeli government's concern that the U.S. will re-enter the Iran deal inform its approach to Tehran? Do Israeli officials still believe that maximum pressure will cause the collapse of the Iranian regime? And if not, how do they envision the end game? Yeah, an end game is always a great question. I think as people who look at strategy and they are our community, um, it's an important question to ask. It's not one the Israelis often ask. I've had lots of conversation with Israeli security analysts, and they always say, you Americans, you over overrate um, uh, end games and, 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 and long-term strategy, that sometimes disruption and short-term thinking is a good thing. Um, and you never know where that could lead to. So I'm not really sure what the Israeli end game is. Of course, the end game for everyone is to prevent a nuclear armed Iran. Let's keep that strategic objective in mind. But getting there can, you know, can lead you to many different paths and different approaches. Um, and so I think at this point, the Israeli assessment sees Iran as extremely weakened. 
between the COVID crisis and Iran's kind of been the epicenter in the region, devastating impact in Iran. Of course, the the, uh, drastic economic conditions in Iran, not just because of reinstated sanctions, uh, but also, you know, ongoing uh, uh, corruption and other, you know, low oil prices, kind of a perfect storm of conditions um, where you have a continuing um, devaluation of the Iranian currency, very difficult uh, living, very difficult conditions economically in Iran. So the Israelis are looking at Iran as, as, as quite vulnerable at the moment. In fact, this is probably incentivizing the Israelis to continue these attacks because they don't think the Iranians have a great capability our capacity to respond to the attacks. They think that Iran, because of this vulnerability, is constrained. This is part of the assumptions that, you know, I worry um, could, you know, maybe will not hold um, over time. Um, But these are the assumptions that are being made. So I think the Israelis are still on board with continuing the pressure on Iran. They are very concerned about sanctions relief coming with a revived JCPOA. Um, They would like to see uh, stricter measures on the nuclear front in terms of R&D restrictions, longer sunset clauses and the like. Um, But they also want to see more focus on things like Iranian missiles and regional activity. Um, So I think Iran, the Israeli game is really, or Israeli strategy is really about continue to keep the pressure on, continue to keep the Iranians weak on the defensive, um, limit their ability uh, to um, to wreak havoc on the region, limit its, its ability, particularly in Syria, to create another front for the Israelis. Their, the concern has always been they don't want to turn Syria into a Lebanon situation with Hezbollah and create another Hezbollah in Syria. And so that that's the ongoing kind of Israeli calculus. Um, you know, I, I think that the concern is that this strategy to date, you know, from 2018 to date, maximum pressure, which is in effect still today ongoing, you know, unfortunately has only led to more Iranian escalation and activity in the region and a more um, and a more advanced Iranian nuclear program now in breach of its commitments under the JCPOA. Uh, there, the reversible breaches and hopefully the, the revived Vienna talks will get us back. Uh, to some containment of this program, but but the trajectory is not looking good right now. Right. Um, I want to follow up about a couple of things that you've you've mentioned. Of course, as we know, American and Iranian officials are currently negotiating in Vienna. So first of all, how will last week's events impact these talks, if all? And could you talk a little bit from your perspective about what you think it will take in order to convince the Iranians to re-enter some sort of a deal? Because obviously the United States gave up a lot of its negotiating power when it withdrew from the deal, which was by all appearances working at containing uh, the development of nuclear program and enrichment. Yeah, um, I think, look, there were some, some folks out there who were arguing that, oh, the Israeli strike on Natanz is a good thing for negotiations. It will help the Americans negotiating position because, you know, now we've set back Iran's program again and they'll have less leverage and the U.S. will, you know, be able to get a better deal. I'm not really on board with that analysis. I think it was 
a complicating factor for the negotiations. It just the, the trust level between Iran and the United States was already pretty low. I mean, we're not even seeing direct talks. I mean, we're, we've gone really backwards, right, since the uh, back channel talks in Oman in 2013 that led to the interim agreement 2012-2013, then the final JCPOA where you had Americans and Iranians negotiating directly within the P5 plus one, but sitting in the same room. Um, with a good rapport, uh, you know, it's good to talk to your adversaries, in my view. And now they're not even in the same room. So we've really gone backwards. Um, so I don't think an attack like this was particularly a good confidence building measure uh, for the negotiation. So I, I'm not in that camp that thinks this was a positive development in terms of Vienna. Um, that said, um, it so far does not seem to have derailed the talks, which is very good. Uh, and I think mostly this is because the original logic of both the U.S. and Iranians wanting to get back into this agreement still holds. Um, the Iranians, the core of the bargain is Iran gets sanctions relief for nuclear rollback and for keeping its program in a very constrained position. So that core logic still um, is driving the process today. So the Iranians very much want the sanctions relief. Um, yes, there are workarounds. They have survived. They have China. They have uh, been able to ship out more oil than one would expect, given these devastating secondary sanctions and being cut off from um, their central banking system and, and the inability to export their oil um, freely has really hurt, as we talked about, their economy. Maximum pressure has worked in that respect. It has hurt Iran, but it hasn't changed its behavior. It hasn't changed its activity. It hasn't changed its nuclear program. In fact, as we said, it's gotten more advanced. So every time you get one of these attacks, it's ratcheted it up. Um, it's under the JCPOA, it was limited to 3.67% enrichment. Um, after the uh, Iranian scientist um, was assassinated, it went up to 20%. Um, and then Parliament passed a, a measure which would may, despite a delay, come into play by May uh, that would limit inspection access, which is so critical to verifying Iran's compliance with this agreement. Um, and now we have the threats of 60 percent. So things are really uh, not looking good. Um, that said, it still welcomes this economic relief. And that's why I think we're still seeing the parties sitting down in, in Vienna and the United States and our international partners want to see this program contained. This is a threat to international security. It's a threat to the nonproliferation regime. It's, a, it's, of course, a threat to Israel and all of our regional partners. But this is a global problem. This is not just a regional problem. So that logic is driving the parties. And I think, um, you know, my view has always been from the very start. Yes, it's complicated to get a revived agreement. And we could go into that more. But if there's political will, there's a way. And right now, I think we're seeing political will. It's tenuous. There's domestic constraints on both sides. There's um, actors on both sides who are not interested. There are, there's pushback in Iran about whether they, um, what are they gaining? Can they even trust that the U.S. will commit to this agreement? Uh, they don't have a lot of trust in the Europeans either. Um, you know, we just make the assumption that they, no matter what, will go back to this agreement. Maybe not. You know, they may have plenty of time as well. Um, so I think it's still very uncertain. I wouldn't say it's a slam dunk that we're going to get a revived JCPOA. It's positive that it's been able to survive this recent uh, set of attacks. Um, but I don't think these attacks were helpful. 
and the timing as well, obviously. And and I should I would like to also mention uh, that uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was in Israel when the attack in Natanz took place. Question whether or not there was any advance warning uh, that to the United States administration. Um, what has been the Biden administration's response to unilateral Israeli steps like this? Well, you know, we're still in the early days of the administration, so I think it's really hard to know, and we don't know what communication went on. I, I do find it hard to believe that the uh, Biden administration uh, rejoiced in this attack at this particular time, um, not just because of Secretary of Defense Austin's visit, but also given the sensitivity of these Vienna negotiations, which were just getting underway. Um, so I, I think it is a very sensitive moment, and um, this isn't particularly helpful. Uh, that said, I think that the United States and Biden administration in particular is not going to be looking for open confrontation with Israel, right? It's got a lot on its plate right now. Um, the, it, I think we should put this a little bit in broader perspective, too, uh, looking at U.S. foreign policy and priorities. The Middle East, it's no secret, is not the priority. Um, like the previous administrations, it wants to focus on Asia, so-called pivot to Asia, China, geo, you know, uh, great power competition is the primary concern in Washington these days. This actually goes across the political spectrum. Um, Middle East is low priority. And of the issues in the Middle East, the Iran nuclear is very high, as would be de-escalating the war in Yemen. Um, but it's still not the highest priority, right? If, if this doesn't happen, it's going to, you know, it's going to be concerning. Uh, we'll try to buy time, keep this contained. Uh, but, you know, things can go on. There are other issues to deal with. So I don't think the Biden administration is going to want a huge, big public conflict with, with Israel. That's not going to be very helpful at this moment. So I think the way they're dealing with this is, um, and they've said it from the outset, it's not a secret, um, consultation. And they're doing this with other regional parties as well. And we've seen it already started. There's been two rounds of very high level uh, consultation between Israel and the United States at the national security level, our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, engaging and leading this delegation. He's a pretty busy guy. So it's not, you know, this is a pretty, I think, a signal of a pretty strong commitment that Israel wants to, uh, the United States wants to consult with Israel, hear its concerns, hopefully work on a coordinated strategy. Um, but the United States has made clear, the Biden administration has made clear, it sees diplomacy and a nuclear deal as the best way forward to contain this problem. Dahlia, could you talk a little bit more about the Iranian response? Uh, Iran claims it will now, as you mentioned, move to enrich uranium at 60% purity. What does this mean, technically speaking? And do you think Iran will hold true to its word? Well, the uh, 60% is certainly worrying. Um, it, when you get to 90% enrichment, you are much closer to, uh, you're getting to 90% is weapons grade level enrichment. Let me just make clear though. So anything closer to that is not a good thing. Now getting from the, the lower level under 5% to 20% is actually even a bigger effort than 60% than 20 to 60 without getting too technical. We shouldn't be so alarmed. It's not a good thing. It's worrying, um, but it is reversible. And Iran has suggested that um, it will reverse, it can reverse if it gets sanctions relief. And you had asked earlier, I didn't fully answer, you know, what would it take to get Iran? And I think obviously Iran wants to see compliance with sanctions relief. The three working groups that developed in Vienna 
um, are focused on compliance for compliance, which means one, one working group is focused on what sanctions would have to get lifted for the U.S. to be back in compliance with what it promised in the agreement. The second working group is what does Iran have to do on its nuclear program to get back in compliance? So this 60% level is going to be a huge issue. We've got to get them back to th- under 5% to the 3.67% enrichment level, plus significantly reduce their stockpiles, which are off the radar right now. Um, in, and they're and back in November, they released 12 times the amount they were supposed to be in the nuclear deal. I think now they're over 14%, over 14 times the amount. So all of this has to be worked out. That's actually a little more straightforward because it's spelled out in the agreement pretty clearly what Iran has to do. Um, but they've gained um, research knowledge by advancing to 60%. And that's harder to reverse, right? They can go back to lower levels of enrichment, but you can't reverse knowledge. So that's going to be a problem to contend with. And the third working group is going to deal with sequencing. You know, what are the practical steps? You know, the whole who who goes first, you know, it sounds like a skit almost. Who goes first? Who said? But it can be done, right? You need, you have the cover of the international community, you have the cover of our European partners and others. Um, and it can, you, we can use those international covers to figure out face-saving ways for both sides to get back to this compliance for compliance. So um, I think that, you know, one of Iran's big responses, unfortunately, to this escalation has been um, uh, stepping up its nuclear enrichment and including the 60%. And so that is going to be something that needs to be dealt with immediately in the Vienna negotiations. Unfortunately, though, um, we are likely to see if, especially if Israeli escalation continues, which I I would foresee to be the case, uh, Iran is likely to continue activities in other arenas. And we've already seen this. So when it's feeling the pressure, when it decided to move from kind of strategic patience to if you're going to withdraw from the deal and reinstate sanctions, um, if we're going to pay a price, you're going to pay a price. And then we started seeing Iran lashing out, attacking uh, oil tankers and infrastructure in the region. This is continuing to this day. We're likely to see more attempted cyber attacks. We saw an attempt last spring on Israeli water infrastructure, unsuccessful. Um, but those kind of things may continue. The Iranians um, may try uh, to... Um, uh, or may support uh, various actors who may try to launch terrorist attacks uh, against Israelis and other countries of the world. That's a tactic they've used in the past. Hopefully we won't see that again, but all of these things are in the mix. And then finally, I would say, um, and this directly affects American interests, um, you know, we have the ongoing um, and really concerning a series of militia attacks in Iraq uh, against U.S. forces and bases and partner bases um, in, in more recently in the Erbil region. So um, those are all really worrying developments. Uh, I think a return to the nuclear program isn't going to stop all of that, but it would calm the water, so to speak, somewhat, and at least limit some of this escalation that we are seeing um, pretty widespread at the moment. You anticipated what I was going to ask you next, which was about retaliation, because, of course, back when Soleimani was assassinated, there was concern about a massive retaliatory response. And there was a response. There was an attack on a U.S. base in Iraq, but and there were injuries. It was not it wasn't just a bunch of headaches, as the former president referred to the injuries, but there wasn't any kind of a major retaliation after the Natanz incident, I think, you know, again, bated breath, what is there going to be some sort of massive retaliation? So I think you describe what you're seeing as 
retaliatory steps, maybe they're smaller steps, but in the aggregate, they become pretty serious. Yeah, I think that's exactly the way to characterize it. They're calibrated for the moment. And the intention is to inflict some cost, uh, send messages, um, but fall short of of provoking a full-scale war. Um, And you see this, especially in the maritime arena, right? These mines that are being, you know, um, attached to these ships and and apparently some missiles being targeted as well, used as well to target some of these cargo ships um, and tankers. These the the way in which they're placed is designed to prevent uh, death. You know, we haven't seen actual casualties from these. Um, They're not sinking the ships, uh, but they're disrupting the shipping. So that's, I think, a good example of this kind of calibrated approach. Um, The militia attacks also pretty, you know, very focused, targeted. Um, But again, you know, as we talked about at the very beginning, you know, what you think is the red line one day may not be the red line tomorrow because calculations change. We don't have, I think, very good visibility into what's happening domestically within Iran. They have an election coming up in June. Um, They have their own politics, their own rivalries. Uh, You've got some pretty hardcore figures there who are not interested in renewed diplomacy with the United States, um, who may see a benefit in, in renewed escalation. Uh, so I, you know, I think these are these are dangerous bets to be making. That you can um, assume that the low, what looks like a low cost, although as you say, uh, not all of it is such low cost. I mean, you know, there have been deaths and casualties, including American forces who are being targeted, especially in Iraq, uh, with this escalation. So I don't think we should minimize this. Um, and it only takes one major attack to go wrong that does kill a number of civilians. And all bets are off about what's next. Uh, I'm going to turn to audience questions in a minute. And if uh, we have several in the queue, but if anyone wants to ask a question, please type it in the Q&A box on your screen. Dahlia, there's been a lot of buzz, as you know, in recent months about Israeli Arab state normalization as a marriage of shared interests in opposing Iran. How do reported talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia play into this dynamic? And where do the Arab Gulf states stand on the Israel-Iran conflict? Yeah, this is a very interesting development. And I think we should note that we are not completely sure what kind of talks are underway and how extensive and at what level between Iran and Saudi Arabia or Iran and other Arab Gulf states. What we do know, though, is that these kinds of talks have happened in the past. Um, While the Gulf states, Arab Gulf states, are aligned with Israel uh, on concerns about Iran's regional activity, um, again, not that they're not worried about the nuclear, but from the regional perspective, the Iranian support for non-state militia, armed militia forces across the region in Syria, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Yemen, uh, these are the bigger threats as far as the region sees things. Now, that being said, there are fissures within the Arab Gulf. Not all Arab Gulf states look at Iran the same way. Um, You have countries like Oman and Kuwait. They take a very different view, more accommodating view toward Iran than Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi or United Arab Emirates. It takes a harder line view. And even there, there are some differences. The UAE has a lot of concern about Turkish influence in the region. Iran is not as high a priority as it is for the Saudis. Um, So I think we need to, you know, we need some nuance in terms of of that picture. Um, But one, I think the key point here is that while they are united in concern about the Iranian program, 
they do not necessarily want to see an escalation out of control. They don't mind Israelis giving Iran a bloody nose, but if it starts to come home, they worry, right? Because if you start, when the Emiratis started seeing oil infrastructure targeted, you started to see the Emiratis reach out, this is back in 2019, to the Iranians saying, okay, let's let's see, let's get some talks going because we don't want this to come home because our own stability, our own prosperity depends on calm in, in our country and our surrounding region, and particularly in the maritime arena, where oil supplies are still so critical to these economies, even though they're trying to diversify. So what I think is, though the Iranian nuclear issue and Iran's activity in the region has brought the Israelis and Gulf Arabs closer, um, you also see that it is active and and, um, forward-leaning Israeli actions that are leading to more escalation and more Iranian lashing out in the region has an effect to some extent, I wouldn't say of uniting Iran and the Arab Gulf because they're still adversaries, but it brings them together because then the Arab Gulf states say, you know what, Um, we better talk to the Iranians because they actually live here. They're right next door and we don't want to be the target. So let's have some understandings with them about not being the, the target for retaliation in your ongoing war with Israel or the United States, you know, don't bring it to us. Uh, so I, I would expect more of this to continue as the escalation to, uh, continues. I think it's just kind of normal politics in this region. Um, there's no kind of clear dividing lines. These things are always fluid. So I'm going to turn the audience uh, questions. Um, I just would note f- for everybody on, on this webinar that we have a link to the study I referenced uh, the uh, by Shira and Dahlia called Israel's Evolving Iran Policy. So the link is in the chat. So please uh, feel free to click on it and read it at your leisure. So uh, first question comes from Jack Rosenthal. Has an independent entity reviewed Iranian nuclear documents, which BB paraded on television? Um, yes. Well, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, on has ongoing reviews of Iran's nuclear program and all of the materials that have come to light. Um, the general consensus, and we may find more as things move forward, is while those documents did show um, and confirm what was known to be Iran's um, pursuit of a weapons program uh, before 2003, uh, there is a general international consensus uh, that reconfirms the 2007 uh, uh, national intelligence estimate, and in fact was just reconfirmed with the most recent threat assessment report, that it does not appear Iran is currently or actively pursuing a nuclear weapons program. It is in violation of the nuclear uh, restraints in the Iran nuclear agreement of 2015. It has an active civilian nuclear program, but it is not currently pursuing a weapons program. Now, there are, of course, lots of questions about how extensive the program was in the past. Had they stopped all that activity? Um, the Israelis contend that uh, that they're suggest that they're, they are still pursuing that. That the documents did show that, but that is not currently the international uh, consensus. Um, and so, I think that's kind of I wouldn't say the source of some of the friction, but there is a different reading of this material between Israel and I would say broader international assessments. Interesting. Uh, Nissan Bori has the following question. Uh, Since 1979, the Islamic Republic changed a strategic policy only when faced with credible military threats. Um, Talks about the Reagan election, release of our hostages, Iraqi massive chemical attacks, ceasefire of Iraq-Iran war, 
U.S. troops ready to attack Iraq in 2003, quote unquote, halted the nuclear weapon project. The JCPOA does not contain a credible military threat. What is the likelihood of it stopping Iran from completing its nuclear weapons program? Yeah, well, um, you know, I think the JCPOA doesn't include a military threat because it's a diplomatic agreement. And so um, the idea is that the best way to resolve the Iran nuclear program is through diplomacy. And in fact, if you look historically, and it's, a, it's an important question because there's lots of debates about whether um, military uh, strikes can set back nuclear programs better than diplomacy. And the historical records suggest that it does not. You had the strike on Osirik in the late 80s, for example, in Iraq, and yet um, we know that Iran, uh, Iraq did uh, resume its nuclear uh, program. Uh, so in fact, it might have only incentivized it to pursue its nuclear program because the best way to prevent a future military attack is to have a nuclear deterrent. So the concern now is that if you continue to threaten Iran with military attacks on its program, um, this could only incentivize Iran to advance its nuclear program and eventually a nuclear weapon as a way to prevent a military attack. Because, for example, um, North Korea has pursued this approach or others um, don't seem to be particularly worried. And then you have the opposite example of Gaddafi, who gave up its nuclear weapons and then the kind of restraints were off on regime change. So um, that I think that the logic could go the opposite way. The other, so the other point I would make is that the diplomatic agreement in 2015, it wasn't perfect, but it was the only agreement that set back Iran's program definitively at that moment. It set back, it actually got Iran to scale back its program in a way that no military attack did. These military strikes can buy time. And um, and they have. We don't know exactly how much time they can buy months, maybe up to years, but usually not that much time. All of these attacks, we had Stuxnet, the Iranians came back to the point where by 2012, before the JCPOA initial discussions began, um, Iran was viewed as just weeks of uh, months, if not weeks away from being able to weaponize, uh, have enough weapons grade material. I just want to point out that having enough weapons grade material does not mean they're going to get a nuclear weapon overnight. You still have to connect it to a device. Thankfully, becoming a nuclear weapon state is not as easy as you would think, which works on our, our international community's advantage because nobody wants a nuclear armed Iran. Um, so I would just say that it, the historical record, um, empirical evidence suggests that this has not been an effective way to set back Iran's program and, and the diplomatic track has proved more effective. And let me just ask a follow-up to that about Natanz, because there's been some discussion that the attack on Natanz will just drive the nuclear program further underground. There's also the Fordo site, which clearly was not affected by, by this uh, explosion last week. Could you just talk a little bit about the concerns about driving the program further underground, making it less vulnerable to attack and, frankly, less vulnerable to inspection, if that ever should come to pass again? Yeah, it is a big concern. Um, the Natanz facility has both underground and above ground facilities. Interestingly, Iran decided to um, uh, conduct its 60% kind of provocative 60% move of enrichment in an above ground facility, which suggests it's kind of more of a negotiating move than anything because it's, it's, incre it's incredibly vulnerable. Uh, to attack. So, um, but it is true that I Iran, if it does not see the negotiations leading 
to viable sanctions relief, um, we probably can expect Iran to intensify its efforts, harden its efforts. Um, part of those will involve underground, part of it will be hardening its um, protection of its facilities. Obviously, Iran is incredibly compromised, as we've seen from these recent Israeli attacks. Um, it's very hard to believe that the Israelis would have been able, um, if this was the case, to do these attacks um, and get inside these sites without having uh, Iranians inside the sites uh, collaborating with the Israelis. So that means they have assets with who are Iranian, within the most sensitive uh, structures within Iran um, and Iran's nuclear program. So um, yeah, but I think, um, so it's kind of a cat and mouse game, but I think that is the concern that if we don't get to a viable agreement um, and this round collapses, uh, that we will be on a trajectory of Iran being incentivized uh, to continue maybe not, and hopefully not with a nuclear weapon. And as I said, that's very difficult to do. And so far, Iran has stayed committed to being an NPT party, non-proliferation treaty member. Um, but at least it, it will want to continue to have a hedge, right? It will want to have the ability to show the world it could do it should it choose to do so. And that's a very worrying place to be in. Uh, it's Sok Sokolov asks, uh, has the U.S. learned anything from the failure of its policy in North Korea? Why has the U.S. seemingly ruled out the possibility of using coercive diplomacy, i.e. threatening to obliterate the Iranian program by using its overwhelming conventional military advantage because before it's too late? Um, well, I don't want to get into debates about whether that's really what happened in North Korea, because when I'm not a, a North Korea specialist, although that maybe um, uh, simplify things a bit much, but I think it's important to note that there have been robust debates about the value of a conventional military option, including within Israel itself, in, in uh, dealing decisively with the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, Israeli military analysts uh, actually uh, opposed this move, ultimately. This is why you're seeing this covert activity, which is viewed as much more effective in setting back the program without risking an all-out war. If you launched a conventional attack, um, which would which could involve significant casualties on Iranian soils, et cetera, um, you, you really are risking at that point a major escalation of a conventional war. And that's not something Israel or others are particularly interested in. So I think that's why we've seen this alternative route to setting the program back through covert means, um, not so covert as we've said, uh, but, but initially quite covert. Um, and the other thing is I would not agree that there hasn't been a coercive element to get to diplomatic agreements. Um, it hasn't been a coercive element in terms of a conventional military strike, uh, but it has been a coercive element in terms of sanctions. Uh, when the Obama administration got to the JCPOA, it got there by a international consensus and getting China and Russia and our European partners the entire Security Council to back Resolution 1929, which launched one of the most extensive set of sanctions on Iran to date. Um, and that created quite a pressure track that affected calculations in Tehran, combined with an incentive, right? Because coercion alone does not, does not get parties to the diplomatic table, because 
you know, you cannot expect your adversaries to just capitulate. You have to give something in return. That's what bargains and negotiations are about. That's what diplomacy is about. So I would not agree with the assessment there wasn't coercion use. It was just economic coercion. We have to ask ourselves at this point, though, have we um, worn out that economic coercion tool um, to an extent that it's no longer effective um, because we have done it for so long. There's so many workarounds. Um, how long will China go along with this? We're already seeing fissures in the international consensus about it. It doesn't work well if you don't have international multilateral support. We cannot solve the Iranian nuclear challenge by ourselves. So that would be my response to that, that particular point. Perfect segue to the next set of questions. We have several about um, China and Russia and their role in these negotiations. So I'm going to pull all three questions. They're related, but not entirely the same. So Henry Berman asks, what is the significance of the Iran-China economic deal? Does that change any dynamics of the negotiations? Wayne asks, what is the effect of Israel keeping up pressure on Iran while China and Russia appear to support Iran unreservedly? And finally, Richard Kerner is there the same level of commitment now by the P5 plus one parties to rejuvenate the JCPOA, given the rising acrimony between the U.S. and China and between the U.S. and Russia? Great questions. Uh, I think it's so important to put this diplomacy, as I was alluding to earlier, in the geostrategic context, right, which is concern about this great power competition. And um, and there is a real question about if we continue to um, escalate our tension with countries like China and Russia, um, is that going to preclude cooperation in these areas where we should have overlapping interests like nonproliferation? Um, and that is a that is a you know kind of to be determined question. We're not sure yet, but to, so far we are seeing a pretty solid Russian and Chinese support for resumed diplomacy in Vienna. You have active participation. Um, yes, they do take the Iranian side more and um, want to see and back Iran's demands for, for actual sanctions relief. And China's been quite affected by the secondary sanctions, of course. This is really, um, it's ignored some of them, but it's, um, and it will ignore them more if, if there's no deal. But, uh, but this has been a problem. But so far, you know, both China and Russia have a strong commitment to nonproliferation. They are not interested in seeing a multipolar nuclear Middle East. This is in nobody's interest. Uh, Russia has historical interest in this, but uh, China has a very near-term interest, which is its economic, its need for stability, for economic development, its Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know, conflict and proliferation and all these things in the Middle East does not kind of help its longer-term strategic agenda. So while we differ with them on that agenda in some arenas, um, in the Middle East, we do have overlapping interests. So, um, so far we see that commitment, but I think if this deal unravels, uh, we're going to see a lot more conflict uh, potential there. Um, on Iran-China deal, um, actually, I just uh, wrote a piece with my colleague Ashley Rhodes at RAND. Um, if anybody's interested in War on the Rocks, it just came out, I think, yesterday on this issue specifically. And um, we make the argument there that, well, one, it's not a particularly new development. We know that, you know, this has been in the works for a while, but we generally argue, let's not be alarmist about this. Uh, China has limits in the Middle East, um, despite its ambitions and, and its economic needs. It still imports 40% of its oil from the region, um, but it faces limits because it's trying to, it has a balancing act to perform in terms of its relations with Iran 
and its need to import oil and have good trade relations with countries like Saudi Arabia, and for that matter, Israel. So um, that's going to limit how far its relationship with Iran can go. So we're we're not particularly losing sleep over a new Iran-China axis um, that will challenge the U.S. order. I don't I don't think that's that's where we're where we're headed. And and we also argue the U.S. still has advantages. Um, we have an attractive model. Um, it's uh, we can compete with China. And and finally, we argue uh, exactly what I just noted on the nonproliferation front, but on maritime uh, security and other arenas, we have areas we can cooperate. We don't need to compete with China everywhere. Um, yes, there's great power competition there. China's doing a lot of bad stuff in lots of parts of the world, especially in the Indo-Pacific. Um, that's, a, that's a different arena, different story. But when it comes to the Middle East, not everything China does is zero sum with U.S. interest. And so we need to be smart about where and how we confront China. So I'm a little bit less alarmist about that. We've got a question from Rick Solomon. Hi, Rick. Um, Commanders for Israel Security, which is a network of 300 retired Israeli generals from all security services, and, and we enjoy a strategic partnership with this organization in Israel. CIS issued a paper today saying Israel should seek a seat at the JCPOA table and that there is a limited benefit to Natanz and to maritime war, a view echoed by former Mossad director Shabtai Shavit, who's also a member of the Commanders for Israel Security and who apparently Rick interviewed yesterday. Um, at the end of the day, Shavit said the confrontation has not prevented Iran from pursuing an enrichment program. What's your reaction? Um, yeah, I look, I think that these assessments are very good. Um, I, I think I, I personally agree with them. Um, I think that they're, they're smart analysis. They show the nuance in the Israeli debate that we saw much more prior to 2015 that dissipated a bit in the Trump years. But now we're seeing resurface again, which I think is a very healthy development. Um, And that uh, that there are ways to see and and Israel can see a revived nuclear agreement as in its interest. Right. Because ultimately it is an effective can be an effective way. And that open confrontation with the United States is not in Israel's interest. And so working with the United States makes a lot of sense. Um, What I would say, though, is that um, these are not, as I mentioned earlier, uh, while these arguments make a lot of sense, they are not necessarily the prevailing views at this moment, as important as this group is, and they are quite important. um, It's not official policy yet. Uh, it's not affecting the current policymakers making decisions when it comes to Israel's Iran policies. Uh, so I'm hoping we see more of this pushback, uh, particularly on the prime minister, uh, prime minister's approach, which is the most strident approach uh, to the JCPOA. I don't think that benefits Israeli security. Um, and and I'm, as we've just heard, mo- many in Israel do not think that at very high levels. Uh, the former head of Mossad, Tamir Pardo, just wrote a piece uh, recently with another um, uh, former security official, defense uh, uh, deputy head of the IDF, um, making kind of similar arguments, um, support the approach. So I, I think it's it's good developments, I think promising developments, um, but we're not quite there yet. I, I think we need to be realistic about where official Israeli policy is. The last thing I would say is even these arguments 
that are more accommodating and more accepting of the idea that a nuclear deal, return to a nuclear deal could be a good thing and a good basis for the so-called longer and stronger deal that Biden has talked about and a good platform to build on to deal with things like missiles. I don't think it's terribly realistic to argue that Israel can have a place at the JCPOA table today. I think that's not just like Saudi Arabia or Gulf Arab states. Um, we need to get the deal in place now, and it's unlikely Iran is going to agree to nuclear constraints opening up the JCPOA table beyond the P5 plus one in terms of the current agreement. There may be room for parallel tracks, and that's why the Iran-Saudi dialogue is very interesting and should be looked at and built on. Um, there may be room for these parallel tracks to address the broader issues, uh, but if we throw everything into the JCPOA framework right now, we may get kind of this worst of all worlds, right? No revived JCPOA and worse regional activity and a more, you know, deteriorating regional situation. So I think, you know, we do need to be realistic about what objectives we can attain now. We have time for one or possibly two more questions. Murray Rubin asks, what is the ultimate aim of Iran against Israel? Um, you know, good question. Um, I, I think there's probably more than one aim because there's more than one camp in Iran. Um, and just like in many other places, there's debates about their national security objectives. And so you'll have some camps in Iran um, that are obviously, you know, uh, see Iran just like Israel does as kind of an existential threat. They believe Israel is trying to overthrow the regime. It's the little Satan and so forth and see it in ideological terms. Um, and um, I don't think we're at the point anymore, you know, despite the rhetoric of destroying Israel, although if, you know, it's understandable that Israelis take that seriously. If a country says they want to destroy you, you know, you, you kind of pay attention to that. It's, it's a pretty worrying thing. So you still hear that kind of rhetoric, but I think generally in the national security community and among other factions, I think there's recognition that Israel is the one of the strongest, if not the strongest military power in the region. Um, they're, you know, um, uh, pragmatic from that perspective. This is why when they launch attacks, they're calibrated. They understand Israel's capacities. They want to stay in power. They want to survive. So they know where to set their limits. Um, but I think they want to diminish Israeli influence in the region. They want an enhanced influence of themselves. And they see that in zero sum terms. Um, and I think ultimately Iranian calculations are very much linked to America and U.S. presence in the region. And so I think it's it's it, they often are combining the two. So I think when you when you ask the question of how does Iran see Israel, you have to ask how does Iran see the United States? What could it live with? Um, what does it consider acceptable? And if you look from the Iranian perspective, um, you know it's 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 at the moment we still have over fifty thousand U.S. forces in the region, excluding Afghanistan, um, and they're all around Iran. So, um, and not not to say excuse Iranian activity and behavior, but there is a um, uh, you know a uh, a calculation that um, you know we're the ones who are surrounded. You're the ones in our region. This is our region, and um, and so that's kind of this security dilemma phenomenon. And so um, I think ultimately they want to see a reduced U.S. presence in the region. And I think unfortunately they're actively trying to reduce it through militia forces in Iraq right now. Um, so I think that is ultimately their biggest driver is the U.S. presence in the region. 
This has been really fascinating, Dahlia, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So thank you, first of all, so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, It's just been great to have this hour with you. And once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call, because your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all for joining us. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly couple of column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, April 27th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. So again, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. Thank you, Dahlia. And I hope everyone has a good rest of their day. Thank you. Great to be here. Bye-bye. Bye.